Mm, just a couple of gals drinking some ice cold, cold brewskis, mm. talking about the second bloom of youth. <laughs> And how you're basically on the shelf and dead at 27. So obviously this was a harder book for Isabel than for Morgan. <laughs> I am 27. <laughs> you're about to have your second bloom of youth. I'm past mine. Check it out. You can tell because mm. I do have debuting for you. My Anna Nicole Smith scrunchie. It's amazing. It's it, worth the wait. Yeah. My hair is totally fried. Mm. Well, not totally. It is chemically altered because I got it bleached. Uh, we are recording in my apartment once again. So we've got the animals, mm, the ambiance, the critters about the official Womance branded critters. They're pretty great. I'm not going to lie. I do really, really love your animals. Thank you. Mm. Thank you so much. Did we hear that? Here we are in Chicago in January. In January. And it actually feels like January outside. It's Finally. Snowing. We're warm in Morgan's apartment with brews and candles and critters and the best Jane Austen novel to discuss. <laughs> scrunchie i'm wearing a scrunchie yeah leggings i'm wearing two pairs of socks i was wondering how you had so much body Mm. in your sock but it's it's two socks also i'm wearing my favorite my other favorite pair of socks these are my humpback whale socks holy shit rupaul's reveal race you just pulled down your smart wools to reveal your humpback whale socks i sure did are humpbacks your favorite whale no they're my favorite whale they're a great whale they're the singers Mm -hmm. they have massive hearts they also are one of the only two whales to come to the rescue of other creatures. So humpbacks are solid. Super, super duper solid. My favorite whale. I had a giant humpback whale figurine Mm. that balanced on its flippers and I put it on my window ledge and my desk as a child. I went to see an IMAX movie about Mm -hmm. humpback whales Mm -hmm. and then I realized how big they were. So big. Instantly terrified. They're so generous though and like if you watch videos about humpback whales and like people, they're so interesting like humpback whales more than any other whales come up to boats other than orcas especially if they've been entangled in nets or if there's something bothering them they'll come up to boats and they'll be like hey assholes you did this can you fix it help me out here please and it's really beautiful when they do that I I love humpback whales I will say Mm -hmm. given their size I think about the fact that human beings we don't like to step on mice Mm mm-hmm But sometimes it happens and we're Mm -hmm. like, oh my God, I just literally crushed this mouse. Mm -hmm. We are mice to humpback whales. Yeah, but also no. And like to other whales, sure. I think like if you got rolled, it would be a total accident. Or if you got pulled into the undertow of their fluke, that would be one thing. But generally speaking, because of their echolocation and their massive brain power, they know exactly where you are and how strong you are. It's big, thin, just bonking me in the head. It wouldn't do that. (laughs) They like knows where you are in space. It's like one of the things if we can just take a moment for Isabel to nerd out one of the things that I loved most about Rogue what, 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 One hold on hold on hold on yep. Isabel's whale corner <laughs> Ooh. 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 god I love whales in fact on this laptop I have uh, humpback whale songs Nick will you play some whale sounds in the background as Isabel shares her my super nerd thing yeah okay Ooh. so if you've seen Rogue One with Felicity Jones and Diego Luna big <laughs> Rogue One with uh, Felicity Jones Jones and Diego Diego Luna, Luna, colon, a Star Wars story. (laughs) Star Wars story. You'll know that at the climactic battle where they're trying to get the plans to the Death Star, Admiral Akbar is there in his ship. Right. And the coolest thing about it is that Admiral Akbar is from the planet Calamari. Yeah. I know. Real reach. It's an ocean planet. (laughs) 
And the thing that I love most about Star Wars, the Rogue One story, is that Admiral Akbar is in his captain's chair, but the captain's chair is just an entire bubble because space is multidimensional. It's not flat in the same way that we think of war or the way that we would think of battles. So space battles can happen above, below, to the side, diagonally. And so Akbar from an ocean planet is already really versed in space battle because you can be in all the planes, including time. And so the fact that they had him in this bubble swiveling about, I was like, finally, Star Wars has caught up with how awesome the fucking ocean people are of calamari. Calamari. I really love their diplomacy with the people of planet Liminioli. <laughs> anyway, I think about this with whales a lot. known planet of pork bungs. <laughs> Deep cut. Uh, this American Life reference. For <laughs> if you want to talk about real nerds. Okay. Anyway, thank you for letting me nerd out on that one. I think about whales in the way that they think about space all the time. Oh, yeah. Because if you don't think in a fashion of If you're like, not like grounded. Exactly. Like, right, like, There's always an above and below you. It's it, always a bubble. Right. And you can always attain that space. So like I think about you that a lot. always attain that space. Yeah. And like the mm-hmm. idea of a border is really about temperature. Right. I think about it a lot. It's so interesting. Thank you. Anyway, so persuasion also. <laughs> so I have this Dover Thrift Edition. I got this edition because I'll have you know that I'm going to give this away for the Patreon because it's got my notes in it. But then I bought another copy of Persuasion. You're for not myself. giving it away. You're selling it. I'm selling it. <laughs> you get it if you subscribe. Yeah. And I got another version because it's all in lavender. And then it's like a cameo cutout of Anne. And then inside Anne is an ocean. And on the far distant horizon is a ship. And I was like, I fucking need this book in my life. And I brought it home and John was like, so you have the book you're going to give away that you're writing in right now. You have the one that you're not going to write in and you also have your other version of Persuasion. I was like, I could probably buy another one. (laughs) An annotated version, which I don't have. I had this wonderful annotated Lolita Mm. and I got rid of it and I don't know why. It was, I think about it all the time. That sucks. I hate it when that happens. When you get rid of something, you're like, I don't need this. And then it's like, God, I wish I had this. I wish. I wish I had the annotated version of Persuasion because there's a lot of references. There's a ton of references in this, including references to Emma. Yeah. Yeah. And that would have been pop culture references, I assume, for the time, but it's too hard to Google now because some stuff's too hard to Google. Anyways. Let's do this. Let's do this. Are you ready? I am. I'm so ready. I've been waiting for Woman's to do this my whole life. I'm Morgan. And I'm Isabel. And this is Womance. A podcast about romance novels. About Jane Austen. About the second bloom of youth, as I've said before. About second chance loves. About letters. About the Navy. And the goodest and bestest boys in the whole world. (laughs) Who have the best stories and the nicest outfits. They do have the nicest outfits, though. Like, that transcends times. Like, I love Fleet Week when they come in and they're dress whites. And I'm like, I don't even subscribe to the thing that you're doing, but you look so fucking good. A podcast about... The military-industrial complex. complex. A podcast about... Ball. Sorry, I keep taking your things. You're setting me up. I know. A podcast about... Let me do it for you. Okay. A podcast about... Long looks. A podcast about... Falling off a wall. (laughs) It's the dumbest (laughs) word. It's like... 
did not realize how dumb her injury is. I know, it's so it's much better than the other dumb. one. It's not even like falling off a wall. It's being like, twirl me! <laughs> we'll Jump me that. down. But most of all, it's about that first thing. Romance novels. And, and ourselves. On this week, at the very end of our January work, We have Persuasion, which you all voted on, and I was deeply excited about because it is, of course, my favorite Jane Austen novel. I have loved Persuasion for a really long time. My oldest friend in the world loved Pride and Prejudice, and we used to trade books back and forth, and she's like, you'll love this, you'll love this, and I didn't love it as much as she did. So then I tried Sense and Sensibility, and I didn't love it as much as she did, and then I found Persuasion, and I was like, I get it now. How old were you? 14. 14 and you love persuasion. You're an old soul. I am. I'm 99. One of my favorite things about your old soulness is that your shelteredness just comes across (laughs) as curmudgeonliness. (laughs) Like I was far too young (laughs) at the age of 18 (laughs) to be hearing about blowjobs on television. (laughs) What's a blowjob? Oh, you mean in the French way. (laughs) French kiss thing has nothing to do with French silk pie by the way major disappointment oh French silk pie yeah it's nice pie. it's nice to have yeah. like a tongue in your mouth sometimes but yeah like... I know what you're saying <laughs> <laughs> just a couple bitches drinking beers talking about French silk fucking pies I think a big part of the reason why I liked Persuasion so much so like we're reading all these books when I'm 14 and 15 and Pride and Prejudice the miniseries had come out in 1995 and it was just it was really long mm-hmm. and I think I got bored of it pretty easily yeah. and then Emma came out which I was also deeply bored by but the Persuasion movie is short and also so angsty and as old as I am in my soul heart I love angst I love looking at it I like feeling it I like being next to it you know Persuasion is almost like the Seinfeld of Austin novels can you explain that further and that Seinfeld was always described as a show about nothing <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And yet it's like so like, do you remember the part where mm-hmm. the black and white cookies? And I think Persuasion is very similar in that it's a book about nothing. And like even the romance aspect of it is. It's holding on by the most tenuous of threads. It's just like but, stuck uh, there. It, but just stuff happens. Oh my God, I love this book so much. And it is the shortest of the Austin novels. Thank you so much for voting the shortest of the Austin Thank novels. Thank you. Emma would have been really difficult. Emma would have been difficult. It would have been a mean thing for you to do to vote for Emma if you did vote for Emma. We hate you. Did anyone? Love you? Did yeah, anyone people voted for Emma. Emma. Everybody voted for at least one of them. Mansfield Park was also up there, which is weird. All of them were represented. Yeah. I'm disappointed Northanger Abbey didn't win. We'll have to do that on our next January. But this was my first time reading Persuasion. Oh, do you want to give the synopsis then? I would love to. Our heroine is Anne. Anne Elliot. I'm going to fuck up names. That's totally fine. There are so many names in this. Anne Elliot, she is the middle daughter of three. She is the child of a moneyed gentry, except he's not very good with money. His wife managed their finances and his wife passed away. After his wife died, the girls were mothered in a way by her mom's very good friend, Lady Russell. Lady Russell, defying all the odds, favors the middle child. (laughs) Literally unfavored by anybody. Because Uh, she's the most like her dear departed friend. Right. And Anne, as a young woman, 
becomes engaged to this boy of little fortune and almost no account which you're like who cares she's the middle daughter yeah it's true but her friend lady russell's like do not marry this guy you can do better she does say that but she also one of the things that upon this reading that i was looking out for is like lady russell's like i don't trust him like he's too big for his britches he says all these things about how great his life is going to be with you but like he's got nothing to recommend him and no connection a young man with nothing to recommend him and no connections and so the engagement is called off and our hero takes to the seas yeah he takes to the seas in ot six on the asp barely seaworthy according to him but he does he makes good and he becomes a wealthy seaman he's not a salty seaman though he becomes mm-hmm. a bit of a gentleman he's mm-hmm. a gentle seaman he's a gentle seaman that also is very a, salty he's not a seaman who's like up in your face no <laughs> no matter how much you want him to be <laughs> well the war with napoleon is currently on hold which is why he returns because he now needs a wife for his immense fortune and his landlubber ways mm-hmm. that he's going to take on anyways so he comes back and he is in fact looking for a wife and it just so happens that Anne's broke dad is renting out the family estate to his sister mm-hmm. and so he and Anne cross paths again mm-hmm. they don't talk to each other mm-hmm. they barely acknowledge one another mm-hmm. there's a lot of passing I mean it's a show about nothing mm-hmm. kids and then Anne eventually returns to Bath to be with her father and her older sister who both suck who both suck her younger sister also so sucks, sucks but maybe eight. sucks the most i guess that would be her sister's in-laws who she loves the musgroves yeah. have two daughters and one of them is courting captain wentworth and she hurts herself and it's a whole thing uh, but then over the course of their mutual shared time in bath because the harvilles come to bath so captain harville comes to bath because the he, harvilles they're his friends because the Harvilles, right? So Benwick is staying with the Harvilles in okay. Lyme, where the right. accident with Louisa happens. Okay. And then Captain Harville is sent to Bath by Benwick to get his portrait reframed for Louisa. Yeah. Because dead sister. Yeah. That's who it was originally commissioned for. So poor uh, Harville has this awful thing where it's like, my sister was dead. You had this painted for her and now I have to have it reframed for fucking Louisa. Yeah. And, uh, but it turns out Louisa and Wentworth are not hitting it off. Thank God. She ends up t- falling in love with Benwick. Benwick, who for a second I thought was going to hook up with Anne. Yeah. He has lost a lover. She died and he is reading a lot of Byron. So much fucking Byron and Keats. And then Anne's all like, maybe slow your roll. Anne gives him some book recommendations to which help he cheer does. him up. Which he reads and he's so excited to talk to her about them. Mm-hmm. Oh, I loved that. Benwick. I really like Benwick. Oh, I loved him. him. Yeah. What a charmer. What a charmer and his melancholia. The sleeper hit. Sleeper hit. Totally. Uh, <laughs> persuasion is Benwick. Uh, Whitworth is in Bath and he's toast of the town. Everyone's like, who's the tall, handsome one? Is he Iron? <laughs> they do keep saying that. Yeah. <laughs> That's my favorite. I think he's Irish. I heard he's Irish. He's <laughs> like, no. It's <laughs> good running gag. It is a really good running gag. There's a great moment in the book where someone is talking to Anne and she has rekindled her obsession with Wentworth. And mm, which never really died. Yeah, no. But you start to think it might be mutual. Stuff is queuing up mm-hmm. and it's post this concert where stuff happens mm-hmm. and someone's talking to her and like Anne is so hungry to talk to about Wentworth. Her thoughts are occupied but someone comes up to her and is like, hey, who's your, who's that guy that like tall Irish one? And she's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. It's so funny. 
Um, because he's not Irish, so she has no idea. Yeah, either. she's like, who the fuck, fuck are you talking about? Why are you bringing... Yeah, I guess. There's lots of tall officers here. You know? <laughs> They're all looking for wives. I think it is a joke. I think so, too. Yeah. the third part of the book. This is an incredibly uh, humorous novel. Made me laugh out loud. Yeah, it's so funny. I did so not expect funny. that. Anyways, they end up together. He writes her a letter oh while my he's God. eavesdropping on a conversation and gives it to her. And then she leaves and he is asked to escort her home. Oh, my God. There's also like a subplot about her cousin she, trying to cousin. marry her. Mm-hmm. And he's a bad person. And then one of her governesses from school is in Bath recovering. What does she have? She had a rheumatoid fever. Yeah, she's rheumatic, but she's got some stuff to say. Anyways, it's just fabulous. I'd never seen an adaptation of Persuasion. Mm. I never read Persuasion. Mm. Closest I got to it was For Darkness Shows the Stars. And I've got to say, mm. I think this book was better than that. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't a bad adaptation, especially since it's YA and spec. I think it like really captured the angst, but no, this book is like a fucking sublime powerhouse, beautiful little treatise. And you know what's so interesting? Please tell me. I was complaining about the fact that romance novels are constantly talking about how the heroine has to be beautiful and she has to be unaware of it, right? Mm -hmm. She has to be like, I'm fat. And then everyone's like, no, you've got a donk, you know, whatever. Yeah. But this romance, (laughs) this book actually does what I've been asking for, which is like her beauty is different than the beauty of her sister. And I like this book so much. I just read it. I didn't highlight anything. I didn't mark anything, which is bad. I know because I am producing a product for all you listeners but I couldn't help it I just wanted to read it and enjoy it and I did but there's a part um, where the sisters Elizabeth the oldest sister and Anne are arriving at a concert together and people are like well Elizabeth's the, the hot one and so I was like no nah, not really I mean like they're both equally hot in different ways yeah so we've been saying as like part of the woman's New Year's resolution is like stop fucking comparing heroines to other girls like she's not like all other girls and this book is so specific about how all women are different. Yeah, and one is not better than the other. Like, Louisa is seen as kind of flippant, but Anne's relief is that Captain Wentworth is like, yeah, she's cool, but I just could not get into her because he's in love with Anne. Right. And, and it's not because Anne is better. Nope. It's because he's in love with Anne. Exactly. And, like, Louisa and Henrietta's sisters are not interchangeable. They're very different. Yeah. And then, like, Elizabeth, Mary, and Anne are all very different. And Mrs. Yes. Clay is different. Like, yes. all of the women that we meet, Mrs. Croft, like, the admiral's wife like all the women are so unique and so uniquely described Uh that like we get a sense of who the players are immediately and like what they're bringing to the table or what they're like taking away from the table the thing that struck me was that their physical beauty is never used as a way to rank them no and neither really is like their varying kinds of intelligence so it's like mary doesn't read and complains all the time but like has this to offer no i will say every every (laughs) woman is a fully fleshed out character every woman in the book is fascinating to read. Every woman in this book is fascinating to read. Yes. They are not all equally loved by the author. No. No. No, of course not. I have to say... Jane Austen hates Mary. I texted you this. I love Mary. She is the youngest daughter. She married a guy who proposed to Anne initially and Anne was like, no. And he's like, okay. How about you, Mary? Like, I... Mistake. (laughs) 
God, poor Charles Musgrove. But the book specifically says, like, Charles seems fine. I have this vision of <laughs> yeah. Charles just, like, puttering about. Yeah. You know, it's not like he was heartbroken over Anne's no. rejection any more than, like, you would be by, like, a new rejection. But he, yeah, he's up with Mary. Mary's dialogue made me laugh out loud oh, at times. And just the funny. way it's all paced together, like, these chunks of dialogue. <laughs> and then you just see a sliver of Anne's response. And then Mary goes back into it. I texted Isabel and I was like, I love Mary. Yeah, you babies did. fucks with babies. I'm a baby. Yeah. I totally understand her like desperate need to be the center of attention, to be in the mix at all times. All the time. She just needs to be in the mix. Yes. Oh God. I loved her. She cracked me up. What do you think about Mary? Oh, I hate Mary. <laughs> hate Mary and I hate her for all the reasons that you're supposed to it's so pleasurable to dislike Mary though and like it's pleasurable because she constantly complains and it's pleasurable because she like constantly takes advantage of Anne and it's pleasurable because she's like fucking rude and prideful she constantly referred to as the Elliot pride she has this whole thing about Charles Musgrove's cousins the haters and she's like (laughs) I've never been in that house above twice in my life she hates the haters she hates the haters Oh my God. I may have been over-identifying oh with God. Mary, like her weird uh, revenge vendetta. Oh, oh my I God. Where I do that. I'm just like, oh. you've got to have a hater. And she's like so intense. That scene, especially where like Anne has to decamp from Kelnich Hall because dads run out of money. They have to retrench. They let the family estate to Admiral Croft and his delightful wife, Sophie. And Anne decamps to the Musgrove home and cottage where her sister lives with their two kids and um, when we get there Mary is immediately like you have to fucking tell my mother-in-law that she has to stop giving the kids cake and like you have to do this that and the other thing and then Charles like takes Anne aside and is like you have to tell Mary to stop pretending to be sick and then like the mother-in-law takes her aside and he's like you have to tell Mary how to like fucking raise her kids funny they're never that explicit except for Charles right he's explicit he's like but the others are like listen I could never say this to your sister it all happens as soon as the other person leaves the room. Exactly. And it's like, Immediate. They've, they've just been waiting for Anne just to get like all of this stuff out. Yeah. And like Anne has to listen. It's so good. It's so good. It was laugh out loud funny mm-hmm. at times. I love me. I just understand Mary. And I know that I'm not supposed to like her. I know that I'm not supposed to like her. I know that it's a bad read. I think she's more likable than Elizabeth. Yeah, but Elizabeth has the disadvantage of... You don't understand Elizabeth's inner life because Elizabeth has the Elliot pride in a way that like restricts her manners greatly. And so you never get like the inner life of Elizabeth. But I was always desperately interested in it, but you never get her in her life. Whereas like Mary is just spilling over constantly. It's true. She really is. There's that scene where Henrietta and Louisa have contrived to go on this super long walk and they stop by the cottage and they're like, Mary, we're going on this super long walk. Just like letting you know. And she's like, I'm a great walker. I'm going to go. <laughs> and it's like, can tell that Henrietta and Louisa want to be, by themselves and she's like well maybe we should just stay back and Mary's like everyone's forever telling me I'm a terrible walker but I'm a really good walker she's like I'm gonna show these people I can walk and then they walk all up the haters and she doesn't even fucking want to go in. Yeah, she's like, nope, we're turning around. Yep, I'm tired. So funny. Yeah, Mary is one of my favorite characters. Maybe in literature. I just thought she was such a card. I thought Mary would be fun to hang out with. Mary is always down to do stuff. Mary talks shit with the best of them, which is a fun thing to do. I don't care what anyone says. I am Mary. 
One of my favorite lines is she's like, I know you're going to bring up the children. Why would I want to be away from the children? I think the children want to be away from me. And so I'm going to leave them with their grandparents for three months. So they've gone on this super long walk. Mary's complained the whole time. And so she says... In spite of her objective skill as a walker. walker. Yeah. And why would Henrietta and Louisa... Anyway, Charles and Captain Wentworth are also on this walk with them. And then Mary says to Captain Wentworth, it is very unpleasant having such connections, but I am assure you I have never been in that house above twice in my life she received no other answer than an artful assenting smile followed by a contemptuous glance as he turned away which Anne perfectly knew the meaning of (laughs) she rolled her eyes at him as he looked away I fucking love it and so Louisa and Captain Wentworth this is when Captain Wentworth is using Louisa to make Anne jealous are like walking away to glean nuts and Mary and Anne nuts Mm -hmm. Mary and Anne are sitting. What is gleaning nuts? Well, it's finding nuts on the roadside. Because you got literally fuck all to do. <laughs> There's no war on. Let's uh, I don't know, glean some nuts. <laughs> to try for a gleaning nuts in an adjoining hedgerow. And they were gone by degrees, quite out of sight and sound. Mary was happy no longer. She quarreled with her own seat, was sure Louisa had got a much better somewhere else, and nothing could prevent her from going I to look for that a better. Phrase. Was sure she got a much better somewhere else. She turned through the FOMO. same gate. But could exactly. Mary <laughs> is constantly <laughs> suffering from FOMO. That got a much oh, better I know she's out there getting getting a much better somewhere else. Anne found Mary a nice seat on a dry sunny bank under the hedgerow in which she had no doubt of their still being in some spot or other. Mary sat down for a moment, but it would not do. She was sure Louisa had found a better seat somewhere else and she would go on till she overtook her. <laughs> so funny. Mary is a blast and a half. How can you not love Mary? She- I love hating Mary. You, would you read it and be like, oh, Mary? No, I'd read it and be like, poor Anne. Oh, you were. I think there could be left no doubt as to our personality types. But I'm like, yeah, but Mary's hilarious. Everybody <laughs> likes her, really. Like, literally, everyone hates Mary. It's <laughs> my nightmare. Uh, I love Mary because someone should. Mary is so funny. She really is. But like, this is one of the things like Jane Austen is always funny, but I think she's particularly funny in this book. Yeah. Like it's no holds bar. This was published posthumously. She died and it's her last book. She wrote Northanger Abbey before this. And yeah. I think like at this point in her life, she's like whole 41 and she's like, fuck it. Yeah. And like, this feels like such wish fulfillment. And like, I think she's can say things and depict Mary in a particular way. And Elizabeth and because she the Baron. Had a failed engagement, correct? She did to Tom LaFroy. It was never quite an engagement. Who's Um, Tom LaFroy? What was his deal? He was Irish. And of no consequence, uh-huh. with very few relations to connect them. It was never going to happen. The Austins, not unlike in Pride and Prejudice, her father was a country gentleman. There were too many mouths to feed. Her sister was engaged to a man who went to the West Indies to make his fortune, and he died of malaria. And much like the Dashwood sisters, Cassandra and Jane, and the mother, when dad dies, are entirely at the whim of their brothers, and they have to decamp to Bath. 
path because there's no money. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really clear that Jane Austen does not like Bath. Yeah. And this book makes that abundantly clear for a lot of reasons. And she loved the country and couldn't be supported there. Also, her brother married a widow from France mm-hmm. whose husband was guillotined. So her reactionary love affair with the British military industrial complex is also like at the deep forefront because that brother and that widow were very kind to her and her uh-huh. sister and mom and were the and most reliable was, support. He was the one who published this posthumously and didn't yeah. he and her sister choose the title persuasion? I don't know about that. But yeah, <laughs> they, the sister-in-law and brother published this posthumously. <laughs> Excuse me, that sneeze did make it into my elbow. Great. Per Obama's instructions. <laughs> this book, I think the way it expresses its disdain for Both is through its genuine affection for Lyme and the country. Another thing I want to touch on regarding how this book discusses physical beauty is that Anne is physically beautiful when she's happy. And the second bloom of her youth, as it's described by other people perceiving her, is really what she looks like when she's in love again, which is just a refreshing way to think about beauty in the 21st century coming to us from the early 19th. That's one of the things that I love most about Admiral Croft and Mrs. Croft is that Mrs. Croft is much older than Anne and, you know, has spent as much of her life on sea with her husband as she has on land. And she's never described as homely. She's always a beautiful woman because of the light that shines within her because she's like constantly happy in the affections of the Admiral. And she and the Admiral have this beautiful give and take and they're so funny together. It's like this scene where she has to take the reins from him. Because she's like, a style, a style in the road. And like the way in which Jane Austen then is dealing with like this idea of when we are happy, we're imminently more... The best parts of ourselves. Right. And it's like obvious to others and people who don't even know us. Yeah. And like, that's such a beautiful rendering. And it's never so cloying as just what we said. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Exhausting and dumb to read. And I think is often the temptation whenever people take on an inspired by Austin type story or an Mm. adaptation where they're just like so thrilled by what Austin, she's not pithy, Mm -mm. you know, it takes a really long time for her to develop these ideas. And of course, everyone loves to discover them and then share them. And then it becomes this really like, but they try to do so pithily. And then it's like, well, no, it's got to be just like a pervasive thing. Yeah. Which brings me to the 2005 Pride and Prejudice. Oh, my God. Right. Somebody fucking understood what Jane was off. What it was. was, Yeah. What it was good for, which is creating this overarching undercurrent of ideas that is pervasive rather than punchy. I mean, to take us full circle back to the idea of water or space, like Jane Austen is using all of the planes of view. She's using the unconscious. She's using the conscious. She's using the social class. She's using manners. Like she's using every single piece that society has to offer. And she's marshalling all of them to create, as you said, you know, this undercurrent Uh that we deeply understand. But that is not something that we can pull out within the first two chapters. No. It's not something we can even pull out. You know, you can say it in one sentence, but then it's dumb 
and it's trite. Right. Which is kind of frustrating because I want to talk about it because I've discovered a new object that I'm so excited about, but I just feel like there is not a possibility. And it's something I've uncovered about Austin with reading this novel that I haven't before, which is it's not about having something snappy. Mm -hmm. It's not about being observant or funny in a one-liner kind of way. Mary is funny because of everything she does all the time. Mary is funny because you see her chunk of dialogue next to the sliver of dialogue. Mary is funny because eventually you know what she's going to do before you do it. And you relate suddenly to Anne in this way. Like, oh, brother, you know, that's so charming. And it's a style of writing that takes time. Mm Mm-hmm and lugubrious time and Mm -hmm. like luxuriates and it's time and Mm -hmm. it's drawn out and that's why I think it's the Seinfeld of novels because nothing happens literally nothing but it says so much about everything literally Mm -hmm. like the whole idea that like and like everything that it says about class is so important and it's like through the lens like Jane Austen's talked about class before but I think it's dealing with it in such a monumentally different way where it's like the thing now about being classless and like having attained wealth and now being asked to enter into circles of wealth is that she hates the performative nature of being a landed gentry person but she loves and identifies with the authenticness of the Musgroves and the Harvilles and Benwick where it's like there is no ceremony and like when Louisa you know cracks her head open the Harvilles immediately take her in and immediately like put their children away upstairs and you know are gonna nurse her and they're inviting people over for dinner and like they're only despair that they don't have enough chairs and it's like the smallest space that Anne's ever been in and it's still filled with this sort of like of course we can accommodate one more and like there's just this idea that like the old gentry like this is a moment of change for England and like Jane Austen is now coming around to it in a way like we talked about when we talked about pride where like Pemberley is a shorthand for Darcy and his good and like master and commander bullshit. But like here we have a move towards smallness and a move towards the comforts of coziness coziness hugie and like the move toward an authenticity that doesn't require performance anymore and there's that great moment where she's kicking it with the musgroves yeah. and then her father and sister come in to bestow invitations for a small get together not even a dinner yeah and she feels the air sucked out i think it literally says she felt the air sucked out of the room okay the preparations however stopped short Alert Charming sounds were heard, other visitors approached, and the door was thrown open for Sir Walter and Miss Elliot, whose entrance seemed to give a general chill and felt an instant oppression. And whenever she looked, saw symptoms of the same. The comfort, the freedom, the gaiety of the room was over, hushed into cold composure, determined silence or insipid talk to meet the heartless elegance of her father and sister. How mortifying to feel it so. This is one of the reasons that I feel Lady Russell is a villain in this novel. Mm -hmm. Lady Russell is exactly like her parents. Anne comes to realize this. Mary, I think, is the one who comments and says, you know, I used to think Lady Russell was fashionable, but God, her outfit is just like so over the top. Elizabeth says says that. Yeah. Like, oh, and give her my love, of course. Yeah. (laughs) 
Exactly. <laughs> Nan's like, fuck you. Yeah. But Lady Russell, her concern with propriety mm-hmm. and her manneredness and the idea that like, of course, it's OK for Anne to go and see her former governess as charity, mm-hmm. but she cannot pull up in her carriage mm-hmm. like she cannot be seen in all these different ways. There's also in the beginning of the book, and I, I've been thinking about this a lot. It points out that her father did not marry Lady Russell after her mother's death, even though everyone thought that was going to happen. And I'm kind of curious, what do you make of that? She wouldn't point it out unless it was working on some deeper level than just like, it's the expectation. I think part of it is like to point out that it was a kind of expectation, certainly, but one that like the baronet never had. I think it's like one more way to point towards his silliness, like the fact that his head's being turned by Mrs. Clay, who's like a skeeving widow. Skeeving indeed. Yeah. She's great. She is she has, she so says, smart. She has like two lines in the book and ends up winning the novel. Yeah, I know. I mean, other than We're Catherine not supposed Wentworth. to like her. No, uh, but like I don't dislike her in the way that like I dislike Elizabeth. Yeah. And I think like that has to do with like privilege, but also like intelligence. And like I think this novel doesn't like what Mrs. Clay is doing, but like has a respect for it. Do you think it does? I do. I've got to say like in a book that kind of understands the complexities of human nature, it is understood that you should dislike Mrs. Clay. Because she's skeeving. And it's also understood that like that's a shorthand for the characters to connect with any other character in the book is being like Miss Clay, right? And it's one of the first things that uh, her uh, cousin picks up on is that he can connect with our heroine by making little asides about Mrs. Mrs. Clay. Clay. Yeah. I think we are meant to truly love Anne and identify with Anne. Like Anne is a perfect good woman. Anne is a Mary Sue for Jane Austen. Anne is a Mary Sue. And so if Anne genuinely dislikes someone, Mm -hmm. then it is understood that that person is dislikable. And Anne also does not have respect for Mrs. Clay. I think Anne points out what Mrs. Clay does. And I think you and I can look at that and be like, good for Mrs. Clay. She's making the best out of a very shitty fucking situation. But I don't think the book wants us to think that. What's interesting to me is how many widows are circulating in this book. So we've got Mrs. Clay and then we've got Mrs. Smith. But we also have Lady Russell. And they're all very, very different widows. Lady Russell is protected by her class and privilege. Mrs. Clay is not. She's the daughter of the steward of Kelnich Hall. And then we have Mrs. Smith who is living destitute and on charity and like is screwing up her courage to ask Anne for a major favor of a man. Yeah. And the three women that are on the most spectrum, like that we're supposed to understand them all. Like there's this line when the baronet and Elizabeth are talking to Anne about going to visit Mrs. Smith and they're like, how can you even fucking go there? She has no last name. And she's like, Mrs. Clay doesn't have a last name either. It's of no consequence. And so like the fact that... But Mrs. Clay has hitched her wagon. Right. And she's doing it through means that are inauthentic. She's Uh scheming. And that's the part that Anne warns Elizabeth about. That's the part that Lady Russell is most concerned about. I think what's interesting is that Lady Russell doesn't like Mrs. Clay because Mrs. Clay takes the place that she believes Anne should occupy. And so like that makes Mrs. Clay complicated too because she becomes the bosom buddy of Elizabeth. But like Elizabeth gives two fucking shits about Anne like and never has. Yeah. So like, I don't know. Lady Russell. 
I don't know. This idea of widowhood is very interesting to me because all of these women are in very precarious situations with the exception of Lady Russell. It's true. And I think there is something very like satirical in the same vein as like the tale of Chi where our widow who is doing everything ethically and morally correct is Mrs. Smith and mm-hmm. she's destitute and yep. broken yep. and in the worst possible conditions. The one who is the most scheming and conniving, she, like I said, wins the novel. Like she gets, she becomes a kept woman essentially. And essentially will become Lady Elliot as soon as the cousin inherits. Yeah, exactly. But we are to understand, I think this book makes it very clear, we're to understand that bad. Yes. Bad, bad, bad. Lady Russell is doing everything socially correct. And too much so. Too much so. But she is like the dinosaur. And I think Anne realizes that. Yeah, she does. Like, this is a dying way of life. This is not the person who should be guiding my choices now. Right. This is not the person I should be putting my trust in. Ergo, this is not the system I should be putting my trust in. Right. But like, each widow represents a different version of moving through English society, right? Mm -hmm. A different modus operandi, but none of them are correct. Mm -hmm. And I think that makes the most interesting point about womanness in general that persuasion is making which is like you're fucked you're fucked so you might as well marry the sea boy that you love that you love yeah i agree i think austin her eyes are wide open to like even with a marriage of love because that's what mrs smith has she deeply loved and cared for her spendthrift drunken husband and they had a really great time together until he died and she was left with all these debts Jane Austen moves on from this like pride and prejudice, sense and sensibility idea where it's like love is the thing that's going to get you through because marriage ends. Marrying wealthy mm-hmm. is the happily ever after. Right. I mean, she still marries wealthy, but yeah. like if you look at sense and sensibility, if you look at certainly pride and prejudice, mm-hmm. it's not just marrying wealth. It's marrying a title. It's marrying mm-hmm. appropriately properly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I like wonder what would happen if Jane Austen had lived longer and she'd been like one of those authors who like went back and revised. Like what would happen if Darcy died? Yeah. And like what would have happened to Elizabeth? And I think like the idea of these three widows is, you know, deeply interested in what happens when even if you do marry for love and position as Lady Russell does, like what that protection means when you no longer have it and like how do you make your way in the world as a woman? But also what if Darcy had lived? Like what happens after the marriage? So we hear snippets of Anne's mother's marriage mm-hmm. which was a kind of a drag like she married a trial she married a guy because he was handsome and swept her off her feet and was entitled landed gentry she married a Darcy and where did it get her I mean, did she marry a Darcy like well he was really attainable if you know what I mean like, <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean though like any other romance novel ends with Anne's mother marrying Anne's father. Mm-hmm. Right. He's handsome. He's kind of a crackpot dynamo. Yeah. He's, He's got this great title and this great land. And this great house and a very storied family tradition. Mm-hmm. And that's where most romance novels end. Mm-hmm. Right. But of course, we discover what a bum deal it was for Anne's mother. Mary and her marriage. Bum deal for both of them. Bum deal for both of them. I mean, they seem okay with each other, but they've got their families to contend with. And they They've also got their children, which seem to be a lot. 
a broken clavicle, man. Yeah. It's like, that's not a snooze. I think this book is almost confronting the mythos that I don't think Austin was aware she was creating. But Persuasion, I think it's so fascinating that this is the one we ended up with serendipitously because I think this is the most confrontational to romance novels as we understand them. I agree. And I think it's the most controversial one in her canon. I think, you know, thesis they didn't write. I think Persuasion is having a conversation, especially with Pride and Prejudice about what happiness or like class or what those strictures really might mean yeah. in, a, in a changing society. Yeah. Because Wickham, of course, is a regimental. Yeah. And like the way that's treated is so entirely different than the Navy. But then you and I, mm-hmm. as we were developing Wickham, we're Indeed. like, well, he's not actually bad. No, he's I just mean, looking out for number one. But then in that moment, Austin wants us to read him as bad. He is definitely a lure of, you know, young innocent women and like the fact that he's looking out for his own best interests is not the shittiest part of that it's the way in which he's interacting with that I think is the way we're supposed to understand it but yeah like how's Wickham gonna have a meal is like one of the prevailing questions of Wickham and Willoughby and like everybody else exactly exactly and like but Willoughby has to suffer because of his poverty he does like or he doesn't choose love over his poverty yeah and that's like the thing they might have been happy but would the needs of his coin purse have outweighed the needs of his heart and that's yeah. eventually what he decided and I think Which, this, why would you ever blame him seriously like if you can fall off a 10 foot wall and crack your head open and almost die like and be convalescing for eight weeks like this is a very precarious time to be alive yeah. maybe not a time to like take a risk on sentiment yeah, exactly <laughs> Exactly. You know, thinking about Austin's own life, which we shouldn't do because nothing exists besides the text. But thinking about Austin's own life, it's almost like her working through of her own disappointment. Yes. This feels like wish fulfillment. Yeah. Like if Tom LaFroy had come back. Yeah. And like she could have had a second chance to say the secret wishes of her heart. If he had said the secret wishes of his heart to her first. If he had written a letter furiously. I mean, the thing that she says, though, to Captain Harville. Yeah. Oh, my God. We're going to have to read it all out. And I'm probably going to cry because I love it so much. (laughs) This book has always felt like it was deeply like Jane Austen's most text to herself, but also deeply in conversation with the idea that it doesn't always work out. And that sucks. But what happens, like, when you get that second chance, like, do you take it? And all this stuff about, like, Lady Russell, like, the idea that, like, she could have, Anne could have had a very happy life with Charles Musgrove. And Lady Russell wanted her to marry that farmer. And Lady Russell wanted her to marry her cousin and become Lady Elliot. Yeah. And the fact that, like, Anne grows into a woman who could rely on herself, I think, is such an important move in this text. And, like, the growth of her, you know, confidence or backbone or whatever you want to call it even just like stubbornness where she's like not gonna marry if my heart isn't engaged yeah and I think like engaged too like I've been thinking about this word a lot because like it comes up so much in the Austin texts like an engagement not only is like a binding agreement but it's also when you talk about something being engaged like in the same way that like Star Trek says engage number one it's like it has animus yeah like there's something about momentum there yeah and like the idea that like love and engagement and attachment are all really active verbs that we use then to talk about relationships I think is right but also like I think it does a particular thing when you say like your affections are not engaged I think there's also something different and special happening in persuasion and the fact that Anne has real choice she has what are essentially 
two good choices. There's the right choice, which is Captain Wentworth. But she could marry her cousin. She could be Lady Elliot. She could get her house back on track. You know, she has that opportunity. Whereas Elizabeth Bennet, like, she wasn't going to marry her cousin. And no, like Mr. She cer- Collins? She certainly couldn't because then her friend would be out of luck, you know? And she can't marry Wickham because Wickham's fucking bore and he's in a bad position you know it's easy to talk about Pride and Prejudice but you know sense and sensibility yeah what else is Eleanor gonna do what else is Marianne gonna do yeah they have the appropriate person put in front of them and they go with it whereas I think Anne has way more of a choice and she could also just peace out on Captain Wentworth Captain Wentworth is the one who has to find a wife. You don't get the sense that Anne has to find a husband. No, she's been asked and she said no politely. Yeah, and she's got other stuff she can do. She can hang out with her sis. Yeah, and Charles Musgrove. She's always needed at the Musgroves. (laughs) Lady Russell, like she even says it where it's like her lot isn't terrible as a spinster because Lady Russell will also offer her home. It's Lady Russell has no adult children, so she'll probably get some money there and she'll have her portion, which is like a part of 10,000 pounds, which is like not nothing. Anne decides that her choices of living alone aren't that bad. And they're not comparatively, especially when we talk about like Mrs. Smith or Mrs. Clay. Or in Emma, right? Right. We are starkly presented with the other side. Yes. Of the coin. If she doesn't marry her. Nightly. Jeremy Northman, yeah, Mr. Knightley. Mr. Knightley. But I think that's something pretty remarkable and unique in the Austin canon. canon. I don't know much about Northanger Abbey or... No, like in that one, she's choosing between ghosts. No, like it's very much the same. Yeah. There's no position. Anne is in a position of privilege in that she is the Austin heroine with the most safe choice. Yeah, but this brings me to perhaps the engagement the animus of why we did this Mm -hmm. is this a romance novel yeah it's a second chance romance novel because i don't know if i want to disagree yet Mm -hmm. but i want to put pressure Mm -hmm. on the idea that it is a romance novel Mm -hmm. because the relationship with wentworth doesn't seem as much of an animus through the book is not the driving relationship so much as Anne's own coming of age story Mm -hmm. that is the flip is switched by Wentworth coming back, perhaps. But is it? I think the switch flip is the fact that her family has to rent out their home and go to Bath. And suddenly her life is understood as something different. But she starts to understand her life, what it could really look like if she didn't get married, if she remained, you know, a spinster. She actually sees what it would be like. And it's pretty okay. I don't think that that's a switch flip that even happened on screen for us. I think that happened when she was 22 and Charles Musgrove said, marry me. And she said no. The, I think we're already in the denouement of like Anne Elliot's growth trajectory, which is why herself. Yeah, this is why I think this is a second chance romance. And like the fact that like she could, could potentially you explain why you think it's the denouement. Like, what's the evidence? That she didn't marry Charles, that she's not charmed by William Elliot, her cousin, that like she's already considered what it means to retrench. She's the first person that says that they have to. She's the uh, person who comes up with the idea that the Kelnich Hall has to be let. She's already taken charge so much here at 27 at the opening of this book that like Anne's progression in terms of like, you know, where she capitulated and didn't take Wentworth in the first time, she's already grown into what essentially is her spinsterhood by the time we meet her. I think she realizes something from being around the what if 
Yeah, I think this so. could have been. I for think she sure. realizes something that she can go on without him. Her life can exist without him. The what if she knows it, she understands it. Truly, we start to see her. She does make moves. She's not a static character. I don't think she's holding a position through the course of the novel. She comes to understand the woman she admires the most, Lady Russell, who were kind of phantasmically introduced to through her memories as like this perfect being. And then by the time Lady Russell actually shows up, up, Anne's like, I don't know about this. And then by the end of the novel, she's like, yeah, not for me. I think what's interesting to me about because Lady Russell appears in the first chapter alongside Mrs. Croft. And I think it's really interesting, especially on this read. It's like, yeah, Lady Russell does loom large in terms of Anne. But what's interesting more about it on this read is like people talk to Anne about her former relationship with Lady Russell more than we see Anne interact with Lady Russell. People are like, she had so much influence over you. Like she was the one who decided that you wouldn't marry Charles and Anne when that's revealed to her when Henrietta says that she's like Lady Russell told me to marry Charles I can't believe people think that like she was deciding all of my decisions and I think Austin very carefully puts Lady Russell and Mrs. Croft immediately into conflict with one another in terms of Anne's psyche at the beginning and you're right she's not static like she's constantly moving around like there's a moment where it's like she kind of really likes Benwick and like there's more than a hint that like that could have been a relationship that she could have fostered or like gone for or he would have gone for her. Here's what I'm saying. When we talk about Chicklet, Mm -hmm. e.g. Bridget Jones's Diary, Mm -hmm. which is an Austin adaptation versus a romance novel, Mm -hmm. the central story in Chicklet as derogatory as that sounds. You can call it women's fiction if that makes you feel better. I don't don't know. I don't really care. Uh, (laughs) Is a personal journey, Mm -hmm. an internal growth, understanding, coming into one's own. It's a building's roman of sorts, Mm -hmm. right? Whereas a romance novel is about two people coming together over a lot of obstacles. The thing that happens with her relationship with Captain Wentworth is that she realizes she can be without him. I think she already knew that but at I the think, start of the book. I think what the novel is doing is saying like she realizes that it's different when it's put in front of you. Mm. Right? You can be like, I don't need this person in my life. I've gotten over him. And then he walks into the room. Yeah. And, and she has that And anxiety. that's the challenge. That's the challenge. But I think the challenge of the text is a personal one and not a romantic one. I don't think the challenge is like, here he is how are you going to get with him? The challenge is, are you really capable of not being with him? Like, who are you? Are you this resolved, self-possessed individual? And I think that's the central challenge of the book. I want to know, how do you read the romance as the central mover of this text rather than the personal journey as the central mover of this text? That's my question to you. Okay, so like, I genuinely believe that this text is working on the idea that like, Anne is already a solidified person. She knows what her life without Captain Wentworth looks like. She's taken charge in a lot of particular ways. And then Captain Wentworth comes back. But I think the thing that's special about his coming back is that she never believes she has a chance with him because he's immediately with Henrietta and Louisa. And there's even a thing where she's like, well, I can never be with him because he's still angry. And she says that by like page 40. But like, I feel like that's demonstrating the fact that the book is putting that relationship on a shelf, putting a pin in it until it comes back around to it at the end of the book. I think the reason why I would say that the central driver of this 
text is their relationship is because the way she's always intuiting him and the way that she's intuiting him is through their relationship and the way that she's intuiting their interactions are like through his jealousy or through why he won't talk to her or through him falling in love with Louisa whether or not that's true the way that she's constantly in relation to him is the way in which she's figuring what that what if would have looked like and I think in that way like the preoccupation with what could have been while she's like forced to witness what isn't is like how this book is working on the relationship can you clarify what you mean when you say she's always intuiting him yeah she's like oh he did that because he's angrier like right he did but that like, what do you he's... mean by intuiting like i know that it means she's thinking of him and like, it's not just that she's thinking of him she's like ascribing feelings to him and his mm-hmm. actions and like since this text is so exclusively in Anne we never really get Wentworth's perspective right. until the very end when we get the letter and then yeah. like their walk together so the way that like Austin is dealing with the problem of like the dual perspective that romances have is that Anne is like oh this is him being shitty to me because he's jealous or this is him being shitty to me because he's angry still and like the fact that Wentworth then continues to to have a voice inside of Anne, even if it's a shadow or an echo or an imagination. You think his presence in her mind is her motivation? No, I think through like, the text, through the course of the story that we are that Austin is giving us, do you think that he is the motivation for what she does, the choices she makes? It doesn't seem to me that Anne makes a ton of choices. Okay. But is he the one there if that's the case? Is he the one putting her into the positions that she's in? Is their relationship what's moving her piece across the board? It's her deference to his feelings, right? Like, that's why she doesn't go to the party. That's why she doesn't do this. Like, there are definitely moves that she makes that are in direct relation to his feelings. Are they the key moves of the book? What are the key moves of the book? Well, let's lay that out. I mean, like, this is a book that is, like, about nothing. So, like, the questions of... But we do have an ending. So let's Mm -hmm. talk about the ending. Let's mm-hmm. start there. Is the ending, they get engaged, they're going to get married. They get married. They get married. Is that the ending or is the ending something bigger? Over the course of reading this book, right, we talk about how it's big and it's impossible to like have it be any single idea or any pithy statement or any one liner. Like it doesn't work that way. So if you read a romance novel, the ending is the happily ever after. That's the ending. Perhaps in Persuasion, that is not the ending. The ending is her realizing the brokenness of the system that she's been a part of. The ending is the moment when she feels comfortable enough around Captain Harville and these new relationships she's built to be frank and open about her feelings and ideas. And they have that conversation about women and how they hold on to feelings, mm-hmm. right? She's able to express herself freely outside mm-hmm. of manners. Mm-hmm. She kind of breaks it. She's like, listen, I'm going to talk to you as a friend. Because I like you. Because I like you, which isn't a concept that she was raised with. Mm-hmm. Because we see Elizabeth, mm-hmm. who is demonstrating Mary. Elizabeth's friendship, air quotes, with Mrs. Clay. Right. The ending is something bigger than just her ending up with Captain Wentworth and making that choice for herself. The ending to me feels like something more than the happily ever after in the sense of marriage, right? Which is the ultimate happily ever after in romance novels. And I almost, I know I'm on a romance novel podcast, but I almost feel like it's selling the book a little bit short to be like the marriage, the happily ever after is the ending of this novel, is the goal that we've been working towards, is the move, is like clinch hitter, right? 
Like I, I feel like it might be selling it a little bit short because I feel like her choice to be with Captain Wentworth is a side effect of all of this other personal growth and experience she goes through over the course of the novel, which I think it is necessary for her to be plucked from Kellynch mm-hmm. forcefully, even though it's her own choice, right? But she has to give up her family estate her titled gentry lifestyle and like be reliant on the kindness of strangers, right? Uh, Make new friendships, build relationships outside of her own family. I think the central relationship is Anne with the broader world rather than Anne with Captain Winworth. Maybe, maybe. I guess that's why I'm hesitant. I think that's fair. I think that's a fair hesitation, but like a romance novel. Maybe. I think it is a romantic novel. It's a romantic novel. It has a love story in it. For sure. But I think one of the things that you've really hit on is like all the things that you're talking about Anne was already doing before Captain Wentworth shows back up. She has relationships outside of her family. She's more comfortable with the Musgroves and the haters. She's already more comfortable than either of her sisters out of her ancestral home. She's already moved away from Lady Russell's overbearing dinosaur visions. All of this work was happening before Captain Wentworth comes back on stage. And I think you're Mm. right. I think, yeah. I think you're right that like the broader question that this ending is pointing to, the marriage is symbolic then of all of these things. Right. Like it's solving the class problem. It's solving the society problem. It's solving all of these issues. The marriage itself, you're right, is larger than the two people in it. But like all good marriages should be. And like that's kind of one of the reasons why like you have people show up to your wedding and like you do it in front of people and like la 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 la. The way in which Jane Austen and this book understand marriage is it's a societal pillar that can move people forward or backward Mm -hmm. and the way in which marriage works is like a community builder (laughs) hold on maybe not all good marriages maybe good (laughs) literary marriages sure 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 But also like marriages in this section, like, you know, all good marriages in the world are societal pillars that move us forward by pushing the status quo. Meghan Markle. You would say you have a good marriage, right? Yeah. You did not push the status quo with your marriage. No, but we did quote Star Wars in our vows. Lots of people do that. Okay. We had a good but party. I'm interested in this question now because you've assigned value to marriage in a novel. And I've got to say, if all good literary marriages mm-hmm. are somehow pushing back against the problem, societal, whatever, that's a pretty rare thing in the texts we read, especially. In fact, most of the time, you and I have a problem with the marriage that resolves the text. For sure. So that can't be the indicator of a romance novel. I think like it's different though, right? Like this book was published in 1818. Exactly. This book is different. This book was published in 1818. And this question that I've been pondering is, is Austen legible as a romance novel in this post? I'm going to put Flame in the Flower as as a marker, but of course it was happening before this, right? Before Witty Wiss. Is Austen, she is the grandmother of romance, right? Mm -hmm. You see all sorts of stuff. 
Mm-hmm. Right. The foundation's being laid. But is she legible? Are these books legible as a romance novel in our moment? I think so. And I think by its broadest understanding, having a hero and heroine overcoming obstacles and ending up together with an HEA, by its most broad definition, these are romances. Whether or not What's the broadest definition? Hero, heroine, overcoming obstacles and ending up together in an HEA. But you're missing an important part. The romantic relationship is the central mover of the text. I think that's essential. I'm not sure. Persuasion's different than Pride and Prejudice and mm-hmm. Sense and Sensibility and all the others, mm-hmm. really. But like, I'm not convinced that it's not that the romantic relationship is not the central mover of the book i think that it is a central mover and that like many of her moves are made in deference to the dead relationship between her and the captain and like she's like making room for him to love louisa and like even moves against an absence are moves around a relationship sure and so the first third of the book is Anne moving in that direction especially in terms of the Musgroves and especially in terms of Captain Wentworth and then we get to Lyme and Lyme begins a difference and I think like so much of this book is about people not understanding the work that Anne has already done Mm -hmm. and like her coming to terms with that is as essential a driver as Wentworth's showing back up on the scene. I think the central relationship, if I... I want to propose an alternative. Okay. Because although I do it all the time, it's kind of worthless to be like, poke a problem. (laughs) That's not helpful. Okay, so my argument would be the central relationship in this text is the dissolving of Anne's relationship to place. Hmm. Because mm-hmm. I think if she had stayed at Kellynch Hall, if they'd found another way to make up the debts, I don't think she would have ended up with Captain Wentworth at the end of the book. I don't think she would have learned about herself through the meeting of other people and been like, whoa, I don't like this. Right. She wouldn't have uncovered the alternative to what she'd been doing forever. So I think she is exposed to another place, which is still with her sister, but she finds a different kind of fulfillment there. And then she goes to Lyme and she loves Lyme, but then she leaves Lyme for Bath, which she hates. She does hate Bath. But then she has a good time in Bath once the people she met in Lyme are back there with her. And I think I this think- is the thing that you and I disagree on in that she's had eight years with the Musgroves already. She's built that relationship. She's super comfortable about- spending time at Upper Cross. She likes going to that church. Right, but she I think, likes. I think the thing is, she gets to bath at the end and she's like, oh, this is pretty nice. Mm-hmm. Even this terrible place that I hate and I don't want to go to. She even like goes in and sees her family and she's like, oh, fuck these guys. Right. She's like, first, I've got to go to bath and now I've got to see my parents, my dad and my dumb sister and Mrs. Clay. And then she shows up and she's like, oh, this isn't so bad. I think the text wants us to understand that she's like not bothered by them because she's self-possessed, right? Yeah. She's got her own internal resources now that weren't there at the beginning of the book. I think they are though because she's the one who says we have to retrench. I understand that she, you know, is willing to start an initiative, but I think her ability to be around her dad and her sister and not be angry with them is an important character move. Okay. And if she was that way at the beginning of the book, she wouldn't have been fearful of seeing them again. 
That's true. But it, yeah. So yeah, I would propose that as an alternative. I'm not convinced of my own idea that this isn't a romance novel, but I think there's enough there. I think this to, is to pick at. For sure. I think this is definitely worth picking at. It's like so dense for only being 200 pages. Do you know what might provide us some clarity? Hmm. The Pisces. Because Ugh. Austin is understood today, literature with a capital L, right? It's true. And you get it. Because this is very good writing. There's TM, a lot TM, happening. TM. This is timeless. Mm-hmm. This is approachable. Mm-hmm. This is laugh out loud funny at times. Mm-hmm. This is saying so much more than it ever is. Which, as much as I enjoy the genre, I don't think Danielle Steele's Titanic novel that's sitting on my shelf over there is anywhere near this. Here's the thing why I think we should talk about this Pisces is taking a priority now is I'm talking about the legibility of capital L literature as a romance novel. And I think if Austin, if Persuasion was released today, Mm -hmm. would we understand it as a romance novel? If a capital L literature was released today, would we understand it as a romance novel? So that is where I think the Pisces comes in because the Pisces is treated as capital L literature. I'm curious about the Pisces, too. But everyone keeps telling us it's a romance novel. It's a romance novel if you don't like romance novels is how it was billed in the New York Times. Which is strange. Condescending. Dickish. (laughs) But there's got to be something there. Lots of people read it. I think this is a big, juicy question. Is Austin legible as a romance novel in our current moment? Yes. You would say yes. I'm not convinced. I think that's fine. Yeah. I think this is something we're going to be subtly exploring long past January. I think so, too. And I think this is actually like a really good question for potentially even the year. Like Jody Pilcutt got into trouble today on Twitter because Ooh. she said that Nicholas Sparks and the guy who wrote The Bridges of Madison County were two extremely influential heavy hitters in the romance genre. And then romance clapped back and said, Nicholas Sparks isn't romance and Bridges of Madison County aren't romance because none of them have HEAs. They're women's lit. I don't know. The Notebook kind of has a happily ever after. The thing about The Notebook is that the film is based on two books. The Notebook and The Wedding. I read The Notebook, the book. I didn't read The Wedding. The Wedding is bullshit. Does not have an HEA. But like that's where it comes down and that like Judy would say anything about a genre that she doesn't know, even though some of her books are classified as romances. Yeah. Well, I mean, do you know what fucking sucks? E.L. James (laughs) is inarguably super influential in the genre. If you look at what's put being put out and the way it's being put out, yeah. Fifty Shades of Grey changed it forever. There are people who have romance podcasts who are like, I discovered the genre because of Fifty Shades of Grey. That's highly influential to the genre. You know, I could be convinced that Nicholas Sparks was influential just because if everybody's reading the same thing, how is it influencing you, right? If everyone who writes romance is reading Nicholas Sparks. I think that was that. You know what I mean? Yeah, but I think that was the argument that people in romance don't read Nicholas Sparks, but like people who want to be romance adjacent, but don't want to read Danielle Steele or Kathleen Woodaweiss use Nicholas Sparks as like a more intelligent whatever, whatever. I am 
am so psyched for our upcoming roster <laughs> because we've got some really cool stuff coming down the pipes in 2019. We and do. I think we are going to tackle this big question. It's going to be a banner year. What is romance? Yeah. Can the HEA hold? Can the HEA hold? Can our current understanding does it make sense? Is it worthwhile? Is it worth going to bat for? These people who are like, romance is the most feminist thing on the planet. Like, is it? Ooh. Not all of it. <laughs> <laughs> Let like, me tell you. I think it's kind of nudging these larger questions about genre fiction in general, mm-hmm. with nerd culture being the culture, honestly. So if nerd culture is the culture, right? If Marvel comic book characters are the driving force at the box office, if Star Star Wars fan fiction is on the big screen starring Diego Luna. So dreamy. If that is the driving force, then what is genre? Mm-hmm. Can genre still be in its cubby hole? Can it still be its own sequestered part of the Barnes and Noble? I think what you're saying, genre is unstable, has potentially always been unstable. And it's only until someone calls it by a different name that we decide that it's unstable. So it's like, we got the Ikea furniture. You and I decided to binge watch a show and weren't paying attention, did the directions in German. Neither you and I are fluent. Now maybe we shouldn't put a beer on the table, but we don't want to get rid of the table because we like it. And it's like doing something. Maybe the table isn't a table. Right. Maybe we accidentally created art. Right. And like it's (laughs) worthwhile and it's worth like being in our apartment. And I think like genre more and more, especially as like more nerd cultures like collide in like strange and beautiful Mm -hmm. Venn diagrams are like part of this discussion of like, can the center hold? Yeah. What is even holding the center? Is it worthwhile to protect? And real quick, what is the center? Exactly. And like, what are we protecting it? We've been able to hear is the center of romance is the happily AGA. every and that cannot be all that it is that cannot be the only rule like there is nuance and color in how we dictate and here's the thing if Austin was released today mm-hmm. I don't think it would end up in the romance section I don't think there would be a hunk Mr. Darcy with a half unbuttoned shirt I don't think Elizabeth Bennett would be represented in a David's Bridal bridesmaid's dress option mm. going up a staircase that is not how this book would be marketed I think it would depend on who got the manuscript for sure um But I take your point. And I think the fact that, you know, we're going to be talking about Pisces and we're going to be talking about other books, potentially even Jodi Pilcutt. I think like the idea of what can be in the genre and what isn't and what's adjacent and why it's adjacent, like why Nicholas Sparks or Bridges Over Madison County aren't romance, but like are legible to the New York Times as like romance for intellectuals, whatever the fuck that means. I hope the New York Times doesn't think Nicholas Sparks is for intellectuals any sort I mean (laughs) it has like fucking condescending patronizing things to say about about romance romance all the time and I think like so do I well sure and I think like there are people writing in romance who genuinely hate women and like I have read numerous romance novels there are published in this decade where like men are hurting women in toxic ways that are not problematized at all and the hero is the guy who says the shitty thing about being a working person but here's the thing maybe romance's role isn't to be this feminist icon of women's pleasure and maybe we need to let go of that little nugget that we've been holding on to or maybe like we need to like because it doesn't hold up sure or maybe we need to coalesce differently around women's pleasure because like pleasure is kind of hard to pin down kind of like the Ikea table but like yeah thing about genre it all coalesces around pleasure yeah (laughs) yeah and pleasure is so plastic yes 
and flexible and changing and like what are we gonna do what are we gonna do I don't know but I like I'm excited to have this conversation with you I'm excited to have it in 2019 and like to bring it all the way back to Star Wars and Admiral Akbar, who always believed in Senator Leia Organa he said this question is a trap (laughs) (laughs) he did he did And it is, and it isn't, and it's worth investigating, but like... It's a sticky, gooey place we're going to. In 1983, Princess Leia kills a slug on Tatooine who's a crime lord and slave owner. And it isn't until 2014 that somebody coins the term hut slayer for Leia specifically. And it wasn't until then that Leia could then be understood as something besides princess or like auxiliary. And even though she was those things already to many of us who loved her and like identified with her badassery, we didn't have the word for it and so like then having the word is the way in which that hinge moves is weird because Leia was always my hut slayer but I didn't call her that until recently and now she's understood by little ones the world over as a general. general yeah makes a difference makes a difference but would someone who looked like princess Leia Without her bra, because there isn't underwear in space. There's no underwear in space, George Lucas. Would she have been... (laughs) Fucking misogynist. The way we create... The way we were able to describe that person was princess. And no matter what else she did... She was princess first. She was princess first. Does it make a difference that she had a space divorce? I don't know. That's not an HEA. All right. That's a lot. Hold on. We haven't done our typical review of the book. Sexiest bit. A letter. Oh my God. Okay. Fucking forget it. Sexiest bit for you. Uh, Besides the letter. I feel like we should have taken the letter off the table. Sure. It's when she's talking to Harville and Harville says, poor Fanny, she would not have forgotten him so soon. No, replied Anne in a low feeling voice that I can easily believe. It was not in her nature. She doted on him. It would not be in the nature of any woman who truly loved. Captain Harville smiled as much to say, do you claim that for your sex? And she answered the question smiling also. Yes, we certainly do not forget you so soon as you forget us. It is perhaps our fate rather than our merit. We cannot help ourselves. We live at home, quiet, confined, and our feelings prey upon us. You are forced on exertion. You have always a profession, pursuits, business of some sort or other. So perfect. To take you back into the world immediately and continually occupation and change soon weakens impressions. So perfect. Such a beautifully executed sentiment that says so much. Right. And is, you know, centered around this idea of love, but really reflects on the culture. Totally. I mean, like, yeah. So this entire treatise that she has with Harville about the nature of love between men and women and what makes it different. That's my sexiest bet. Weirdest part. (laughs) I know my weirdest part. Okay. What's your weirdest part? The fetishization of the military industrial complex. (laughs) You know, I know that I said this earlier, but like her sister-in-law's first husband was guillotined. So like she was reactionary or little Jane. But it is. There are all these parts in the book where characters that we are meant to respect, like, and look up to make comments such as, I hope we have another war so that that everything can get fixed. It's pretty messed up. And also the idea that, like, the military is creating a more perfect person is uh, pervasive throughout this novel. And deeply problematic. Yeah. Like, the problems of our hero are solved through War war and conquest. War and conquest. Exactly. Yeah, that's a problem. I think my weirdest part is 
Fenwick and Louisa. Yeah. Like it's so sudden. Mm -hmm. They are entirely different. He's like reading Byron and Keats and she's like never read a book. Yeah. And then they're like deeply in love. And I'm like, "Mm, that seems weird and like plot fixy. Do you know what seems weird to me is that everyone else feels it's weird. Yeah. And like won't stop talking about how weird it is. And it's it's kind of like opposites attract. Sure. But I guess Paula Abdul and MC Scat Cat had not made that sentiment known. Mm at the time of this book's publication. Although Pride and Prejudice. Yeah, hello, opposites attract. And it is at once dismissive of both Benwick's interests. They're like, that guy's all fucked up from reading books. <laughs> and Louisa, where they're like, and she's an idiot. She doesn't read any books. It is dismissive of both of them <laughs> at once. cruelly dismissive of both of them at once. Yeah. I hope those crazy kids make it. All right, here's the big question. Mm. Womance or no man? This is my ultimate womance. I've read this book like eight times. I own four copies. I'm like sick with persuasion. So, so man's. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was a romance. The romance. I was not ready to love it as much as I did. And I just, oh, head over heels. Head over heels. Thank you, Isabeau, for bringing this book into my life. Thank you, listeners, for choosing it. Thank you, listeners, for voting on it. We did not fix the votes. Did we? No. Did we? No. If we had, I would have chosen Northanger Abbey because I thought you would have liked it more than this, but I'm so glad you liked it. Spooky (laughs) ghost. I think we should read Northanger Abbey. Well, also, this just makes me hungry for more Austin. People have slid into our DMs and said that Austin is boring, and so they're not going to listen to this episode. Mm -hmm. And I hope we prove them wrong. I hope so, too. I hope (laughs) Austin is timeless. What a gas. Always worth investigating. And with that... Loosen your stays. (laughs) Never your principles. Whoa, indeed. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Womance. All editing and music is done by Nick Gravelin. Our logo is by Mary Reichman. And our webmistress is Jane Bonzak. They're the best. Feeling woeful about having to wait a whole week for more romance? Well, cheer up, Buttercup. You can creep or connect with us on Instagram, Twitter, or our website. Our webpage is womancepod.com. If you prefer to be more verbose and or direct, why not send us an email? We're womancemail at gmail.com, and we can't wait to hear from you. In the meantime, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us on your favorite podcast listing app. Until next week.